I saw the Lord. He was sitting upon a throne. He was high and he was lifted up. And the train of his robe, it filled the temple. And above him, above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called, and one called to the other. And this is what he said. He said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And the foundations, they shook. They shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me. I am lost for I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Does that fire you up? Does that fire you up? Anybody? Does that fire you up? Come on. What's the name of this message series? It's called fired up. We're going to get fired up today. But let me tell you something. That passage doesn't only fire me up. It freaks me out. It really freaks me out. Does it freak you out? Okay, let's let's cover the fired up part first. Uh, okay, it's the Lord. He's sitting upon a throne. He's high and lifted up. He is majestic. He is there in all his glory. And he's holy. And he's perfect. And he's incredible. And he's beautiful. That fires me up. Then we learn the seraphim, the angels, that are proclaiming holy, holy, holy. He's so holy. And he's so incredible. And he's so intense that these angels have to have their wings covering their face. They can't even look upon him because his holiness and purity is so great. Wow. And then Isaiah, the prophet, who this is, who's who's reading this to us. Isaiah says, woe is me. I am lost. And I am a man of unclean lips. I am a sinner before the presence of the holy God. incredible we're going to be in Isaiah 53 actually we'll start at 5213 today if you don't have a Bible raise your hand they'll bring some up to you something we need to understand here real quick Isaiah is a prophet and you guys have heard that before and you just think oh yeah okay Isaiah is a prophet he uh, he predicted things that would happen later Well, let me correct you real quick. A prophet isn't a person that predicts things that come later. That's like a a sports bookie or something. You know, that's somebody saying, I predict that the Cubs will win today. And he's got a 50-50 shot of being right. A prophet is a messenger of the Lord God Almighty proclaiming what the Lord God has said. This is going to happen. Think of it like this. 
good friend of mine just walked in. I haven't seen him in years, and I love that he's here. And he's a TA, uh, a student, uh, a teacher's assistant at the University of Illinois. Think of it like this. God would be like the professor. And the professor says, okay, I've got a syllabus. This is what's going to happen throughout this semester. And he hands that syllabus to the TA, the, the teacher's assistant. And that teacher's assistant, he takes that message and he tells all the students, okay, guys, listen up. This is what the prof is going to cover. This is what is going to happen this semester. You can believe it and follow it and pass or not and fail. Got it? So it's not a prediction. When the prophet's speaking to us, he's speaking God's words to us. And God is saying, this is either what is going to happen or this is what I want you to change. It's not a prediction. Isaiah is one of the greatest prophets. This book, all throughout the New Testament, and if you're in here and you don't know a lot about the Bible, the New Testament's the part where Jesus comes on the scene. You've heard about Jesus, that's when he comes in the, into the program. The Old Testament, that's, that's uh, the, the Jewish, uh, the law, that's where God revealed himself to us, is through the Israelites, okay? And, and Isaiah, he's one of these Israelites. And one of the jobs of the prophets is to show us, to, to lead us, and let us know that there's a Messiah coming, a Savior coming for us. Okay? That's his job. Isaiah, he prophesies about Israel. He talks about Judah. But then he talks about Jesus. There's four songs in Isaiah called servant songs. And what they are is they're four pinpointed this is the Messiah. This is what he's going to look like. And today we're in one of them. We're in um, Isaiah 52, 13. Why am I fired up about Jesus? Why am I fired up about God? It's because... That God that we saw in Isaiah 6 that was high and lifted up with the angels proclaiming, holy, 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 that same incredible, intense, and beautiful God humbled himself and became a servant. He dropped down to this earth and he lived a life just like you guys and me. And he came here and he felt the pain he felt the hurt. He felt the rejection. Just like you and me. That fires me up. Because that holy God is showing himself to be a loving God. And merciful God. Let's see what Isaiah has to tell us here. First thing we see. And he is the exalted servant now right out of the bat here the very first verse isaiah is saying man we're lifting him up he is exalted okay that's what we're looking at why is he starting right out of the shoot and saying he's exalted because i'm telling you what 
He's about to bring the heat. He's about to tell you some stuff that is really difficult to hear. He's about to really challenge your thinking of who the Messiah should be. So right up front, he's going to lay it out there and say, this is who I'm talking about. I am talking about the Messiah. He uses the same exact language that we see in 6.1 in Isaiah 52.13. Follow along. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. Another, another way of saying that would be he is to be successful. Behold, my servant shall have a success. He shall be high and he shall be lifted up and shall be exalted. Just so everybody in the room knows, Isaiah is saying this. Okay, I'm talking about the Messiah here. And be ready, because it's going to look a little bit different. And he starts right out of the chute with something a little bit different than what we would expect. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Right off the bat, Isaiah is saying it's going to be different in this way. Our exalted servant is going to come to this earth and be crushed. He's going to be bruised. He's going to be pierced. It's not going to look the way you think it's going to look. It's not going to look good. He goes on to say this. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Now, that's a kind of a weird word. What you need to realize, remember, Isaiah is a Jew. He's very familiar with Mosaic law. And, and he's very familiar with the fact that the high priests of Judaism, when they would go into the temple to sacrifice for sin, it was a blood offering that was sacrificed. A lamb was slain as a sacrifice. And they would sprinkle that blood on themselves. And, and within... The temple of God as a sacrifice for sin. And he's saying, listen, this exalted servant. He's going to be sacrificed. He's given him a little taste of what's to come, what he's going to hit harder later. Then he says this. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Guys, this was off the hook. Crazy. This is an Israelite. Saying that the Messiah is not only going to be there for the Jews, but for the Gentiles or the non-Jews. It's for many nations, not just the Israelites. Going on, he says, kings shall shut their mouths because of him. How many of you have ever seen in a movie... A king just shut up or read in a book or seen in real life when you see him on TV. They're the ones lifted up. They're the ones exalted. If they're talking, everybody else better be shutting up. What does this do? This again exalts the servant savior. When even kings will bow down and be silent before him. So the king shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told, them they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Now, guys, you need to know something. 
not every king is going to shut their mouth and bow down when they hear of Jesus. Some will. Some will say, Lord, Lord, and they'll worship him, worship him as a savior. But others will not bow down until they are gone. In Philippians 2, we find that every knee will bow down to Jesus Christ. And you guys need to know something. Every knee will bow down to Jesus Christ, either as Savior, thank you, or judge, oh, woe is me. There's two groups of people in this room right now. Those are going to bow down and say, my Savior. And those that are going to bow down and say, oh, woe is me. My hope is that everyone in this room would come to the place where everyone would call out, oh, my Savior. The interesting thing about this last verse, verse 15, is the Apostle Paul, in the book of Romans, he uses this verse, and what he does is he says, that uh, this is like his launching pad for proclaiming Jesus Christ outside of the Jewish faith. This is his launching pad for proclaiming Jesus to everybody, to the Gentile. Paul uses this verse right here in Romans 15. He says, what am I doing? I'm proclaiming Jesus to everybody. And he uses this. It's incredible. Let me ask you something. He's the exalted servant. What does that mean to you and me today? It means this. If he is your Lord and Savior, exalt him with every being of your life. Exalt him for where he, where he is now, where he came from, where he came to, and what he did for you. Exalt him. Lift him up. And then secondly... If you want to know, well, how do I do that? How do I do that with my daily life? How do I exalt Jesus? I challenge you to follow Paul's example. Exalt him by proclaiming him to those that don't know him. Exalt him by proclaiming him. Last week, I had a really, really interesting uh, text. It was probably one of the coolest text messages I've ever got as a uh, high school pastor. So I'm just going about my business and all of a sudden I get this text up and it's from one of my students. And this, and the text is this, he says, Aaron, and you can sense urgency. He's got the exclamation points, all this stuff. He's like, Aaron, pray for me now and pray for my driver's ed teacher. He puts right after it. He goes, I'm telling him about Jesus. Listen up, people. We can learn a lot from some of the kids in this congregation. You've got some beautiful, beautiful students. Later on, I, I talked to the student. I have no idea where, where this driver ed teacher is now. I hope he's in this congregation. But I know what it did to this student. It wrecked him. The next time I talked to him, I said, dude, what happened? And he goes, Carnahan, it was unbelievable. This is what happened. I started talking to him about Jesus, and I found out he's a devout Muslim. And he didn't back down. He just kept talking about Jesus. And what did he do? He went to the Word of God, and he started telling him about the Bible. 
A 16-year-old kid telling his teacher, his superior, about Jesus. He goes, Carnahan, for two days in the car, that's all we talked about was Jesus in the Bible. He exalted Jesus Christ with his mouth and with his testimony of what Jesus has done for him. And you want to know what that kid told me? He said, Aaron, my faith is stronger now than ever before in my life. Guys, when you exalt Jesus, there's something you get back. You get closer to him. And then he said this, my whole thought on what I'm going to do with my life has changed. I think I'm supposed to just tell people about Jesus. <laughs> how beautiful is that? You want to know how to exalt Jesus? Take Paul's example. Proclaim him. Our second point is this from Isaiah 53, starting at verse 1. You'll notice we're always going to be in threes here. It's a poem. The next servant savior is the rejected servant. Now, it's important to note that in the Gospel of John 12, he quotes these verses, pointing out to us that Jesus fulfilled this because he was rejected by his own. He also, in, very, in the very beginning, in the first John, he proclaims this. Paul also mentions it in Romans. Very important to note. It's been fulfilled. They say this, who has believed what they heard from us? Us being those small minority that have believed. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? What he's basically saying here is, to those that we've proclaimed, who has believed in the Messiah? As he was kind of basically saying in, in a hypothetical way, not many people have chosen to believe. This is also a very important verse because of this. By saying the arm of the Lord, he is again letting you know, listen up, this isn't going to sound normal. I'm talking about the Messiah here. We know from 52.10, he says, The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. When he's mentioning the holy arm of God, he's talking about the power of God, and that power comes through the Messiah. Listen up. I'm talking about the Messiah here, who few have chosen to believe in. Why don't they believe? Well, for starters, when we look at verse 2, for it grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. Again, Jesus fulfilled this in that he didn't just come onto the scene like, you know, Braveheart, you know, with a big sword coming into the city. I'm kicking butt and I'm taking over. Everybody saved. Me and the army took it. Came in like a baby. Not only did he come in as a baby, he came in as a baby to a poor working class, blue collar family, a poor family. Okay. Doesn't sound real majestic yet. There's going to be some confusion here. And then to beat that, we find out that Christ fulfilled this and the fact that he was born in Nazareth and, and his own, his own disciples said, well, what good can come out of Nazareth? They're like, what, what good comes out of there? Be like us saying, what good comes out of Vegas, man? You know what I mean? 
So it's very, very strange that he's coming from this place. And then let's look further. He says, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Well, that's interesting because all the pictures I see of Jesus, he's got beautiful, long, flowing hair, his blue eyes, a good-looking booger. He's somebody you want to follow just because he's pretty good-looking. Right? Isaiah says, no, not so much. I had an interesting thing happen to me when I was at camp with the high school kids a couple of weeks ago. Pastor Kent, he sent me an email and he said, Carnahan, I want you to choose a verse that fires you up. That's what we're preaching on this summer. What fires us up? I'm like, well, Jesus fires me up. (laughs) And then God pointed me to Isaiah 53 and I'm like, oh, this is awesome. Verse is incredible. So then I read it all that night and I read through it again. I'm like, this is so cool. This is a great verse. And I read through this section here, you know. Next day, I'm sitting and I'm having breakfast and I'm thinking about it. It's like, cool, I already know what I'm going to preach. I'm excited about it. And then this girl from this other table, she leans back and she goes, hey, Aaron. I go, yeah. She goes, I need to tell you something. I go, what? She goes, Aaron, whenever I pray or think of Jesus, I picture you. I'm like, what? (laughs) Do you know Jesus was an ugly feller? I mean, that was humbling. I'm like, you picture me. He was an ugly dude. I just read it the night before. Now I'm getting told I look like him. (laughs) I should be thrilled, but not so much. He wasn't a good looking guy. And let me tell you something. You want to know what we believe to be incredible in our culture today? The most handsome, the most wealthy, the most successful, the most beautiful people. That's who we lift up. That's who we exalt. I've got news for you. Jesus didn't come that way. When I was thinking about this, I'm sickened by myself at times. How many of you guys this week have walked by somebody in the street that doesn't look like you, that's a different color, that is hurting, that is in pain, And you don't say a word because he doesn't meet your status. Man, I think of those that have rejected Jesus because of what he looked like and where he came from. And I pray that I am never like that. And when I fail, I want to repent of it and get in front of those people and get on my knees and say, I repent of it. I am sorry I treated you like that. So, they didn't believe in him because of his looks, because of his class and where he came from. Also, from the next verse, verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Did anybody else get comfort in the fact that Jesus felt some of the stuff that we deal with every day? Amen. Jesus knows it. Jesus has felt it. If you're in this room and you're hurting and if you're in pain and if you're sick and you're tired and you've been rejected and you've been despised, know that Jesus felt it too. The only difference is this. He didn't deserve it. The suffering he felt was yours and mine. Incredible. What fires me up? That I serve a rejected servant that knows how I feel. 
What can we get from this? Do we trust him? I was thinking about it. His plan is so off the hook, weird and different from what they were planning. They wanted a royal king, majestic and beautiful. And they got a a carpenter out of Nazareth that was not very good looking. He didn't fit their plan. I remember 2004, I'm working for a company that's doing very well. I'm making more money than I've ever made in my life. I am successful. I am dressed well. People respect me. And I'm moving up. And in the middle of that, God calls me to leave it to start my own company. Now, from the world's standpoint, it's crazy talk. I had everything. I had the world by the tail. I had everything I wanted. And, and the more I got, based on what the world says is great, the further I got from the Lord. Until finally he says, I'm calling you out. You're going to go do some work for me. Start this company with your friend. Jill and I had hard prayer over this, man. We knew our, our income was dropping significantly. But I did it. I believed him when he said, trust me. A few years later, that company dropped to nothing. And failed. And God pulled me up out of that failure and he said, now you're ready to do what I've called you to do. Go and proclaim Jesus. And that's why I'm standing here right now. Let me tell you something. If I would follow follow the world's plan for my life in 2004, I wouldn't be standing here today proclaiming Jesus' plan for our lives. What's the application for the rejected servant? You trust him even when you don't see it. Trust him even when you don't understand why he's calling you to do what he's calling you to do. Let's move on. By the way, I think of on that, I think of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. What's he say then? Lean not on your own understanding. What were the people doing when Jesus came? They were leaning on their own understanding. He says, acknowledge me and I'll direct your path. That's the path I want to be on, not my program. Moving on. Our last point is the victorious servant. Now this one, I got to tell you, Anybody that knows me, this is about all I ever talk about. (laughs) This is incredible. That we serve a God that came here and lived like us and rose victoriously. And let's read how he did it. Point number one, you can put like, if you're a note taker, put a little sub point on here. How is he victorious? One, he paid the penalty. He paid the penalty. We read in verse 4, surely, this is after we read that they rejected him, verse 3, he has borne our griefs and he's carried our sorrows, yet we, uh, well, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. So what, what he's saying is, surely he did this for us, but, but what happened is we thought, well, maybe he just did something wrong. 
Maybe he just made God mad. And then he clarifies in verse 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He's laying it out there now. He's saying he was this word wounded. Another word for this. What he was saying here is he is pierced. This is crazy talk here because they didn't crucify people. The Israelites, they stoned people when they had to put them to death. They did not crucify them. But yet, 750 years before it happened, he says he was pierced for our rebellion. A rebellion from God. He was crushed, a strong word, for our iniquities. Let me break that one down for you. Our sin. Let me break it down further for you. Anything we do that's wrong... From the smallest to the greatest. He's crushed for our iniquities. It's important to note. Let's go to 10a too. Let's look at that. Follows along the same lines. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin. We need to understand something people. Who crushed Jesus? Who crushed the servant savior? God crushed him god the father and he crushed him because of our sins you've got to understand something remember in 6 1 how holy god is and how perfect he can't have unholiness and sin there with him so he says okay i love him i want him with me So what I'm going to do is I'm going to send Jesus, the servant. He's going to live perfectly and he's going to die for those sins. I'm going to put those sins of those people on his shoulders. You guys need to know something though. If you don't receive that gift, if you don't believe in that, if you don't accept the fact that Jesus died for you, those sins that are in your life still need to be paid for. And this is a hard message to hear, but I've got to tell it. In John 3, 36, he says that the wrath of God remains on the man that does not believe in Jesus Christ. We love to quote John 3, 16 and say, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And that is true and that is beautiful. But if you're sitting in this room and you have rejected that, you need to go to verse 3, 18 and say, he who has not believed is condemned already. People, again, there's two groups of people in this room. Those are the people that believe that are saved and those are the people and they're alive and those are those people that do not believe refuse and you're dead before you even know it get this we go back to some good news upon him was the chastisement or the punishment that has brought us peace listen up guys this is so cool because there's so many people including a lot of you believers in this room right now, that you're like, yeah, I received Jesus Christ and all, and that's all good and beautiful, but man, my life is hard. And, and you're just thinking about the eternal. You're thinking about the heaven, which is a great place to think of, but you need to know that Jesus has given you peace right now. 
When you accepted him as your savior, he said, right now, you're alive. You were dead a second ago. You're alive now. You're my baby. Do you know in John 1, he says, you are my child. You're his kid now. You are God's possession. You are loved. And he will put his peace upon you. It doesn't mean we're not going to suffer. It means when we suffer, we've got a savior that's already taken care of business. And we can rest in peace in that. That fires me up. That should fire you up. It's an incredible testimony of the love of our Lord and Savior. Let's go on. And with his stripes, we are healed. I need you guys help on this next one. Can you give me the first word of this next verse in six, please? One, two, three. You say it loud because I didn't hear that at all. Say it real big and real loud. One more time. You guys are weak. Come on. You hear me yelling? This is my second message. I want you to yell it out one more time. Oh, okay. That's right. Now we're on to something. So all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned, oh no, I can't read this one again. What's these next two words? We have turned. Okay, one more time. You see my hand, it's like a conductor. Ready? One, two, three. Everyone. Everyone. Who's turned away? Everyone. All of us. All of us ascend. All of us fall short of the glory of God. Every single one of us. Isaiah said it 750 years before Jesus, and, and Jesus said it 750 years later. No one is holy. No, not one. All of us have turned away to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. In spite of our rebellion, of our sin, of our wrongdoing, he loves us so much. He said, I'm taking it. I'm going to take it. It's mine. I love them. They're my babies. I'm taking it. Wow. What an incredible promise. We need to live in the peace rather than our lonely existence as walking zombies, which is basically what we are before receiving Christ. You're not alive. You might think it because you've got some really cool things, but it's nothing. Live in peace. Live with Christ. Next point, sub-point on this is this. Why was Jesus victorious, the suffering servant? Why was he victorious? Because he was completely obedient to God the Father. This next section of verses, just so you know, 7 through 9. In Acts 8, you'll read all about this. And it's where the Ethiopian confronts, or Philip, the evangelist, uh, confronts the Ethiopian as he's reading this passage. And uh, the Ethiopian says, dude, who's he talking about here? And Philip's like an evangelist. He's like, who's he talking about? Let me tell you who he's talking about. And so this is the verse that, that, that Philip uses to bring the Ethiopian to Jesus Christ in Acts 8. It again points us to the fact that this that Isaiah is talking about is the Lord and Savior. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb is led to the slaughter and like sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. 
In Matthew 26, 63, we read that, that Christ was silent before his, his captors, fulfilling this prophecy. What can we get from that? Christ was obedient, and he did not complain. He knew what was coming, and he was without complaint. Before Jesus was crucified, the night before he was in this garden, you know, and he knew it was coming, and he was crying out to God the Father. He said, God, I don't want this to happen, but not my will. Yours be done. And if it is your will, I will just do it. How many of you are like me, and you're fine being obedient with God until it hurts? And then you say, okay, I'm doing what God wants, but... And the complaining starts. Stop it. No complaining. Complete obedience. Secondly, verse uh, 8, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. An oppression and judgment would indicate that he was, uh, he was taken away and he didn't deserve it. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. Secondly, under obedience, he was obedient even through the worst suffering. He did not complain and he remained obedient even through the worst kind of suffering when we do not deserve it. Lastly, verse 9. They made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Important to note that uh, this is also fulfilled by Christ yet again and that he was a poor man that died and was buried in a wealthy man's grave. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Last point on obedience, he remained holy through his suffering. 1 Peter 2.22 mentions this. Again, the prophecy fulfilled. Remain holy, even in your suffering. I know for me, when the going gets tough, that's usually when the sin keeps knocking harder and harder and harder. And I'm just telling you, reject it and run to Christ. Follow his example. When I think of obedience, something that comes to my mind is the Tin Boom family. They were this family during World War II that had a beautiful little watch shop in Amsterdam, a perfect little life. They were believers in Jesus Christ. The Nazis took over, and they're taking the Jews out to the concentration camps. The Tin Boom family decides they are going to try to save as many people as they can, and so they hide them within their homes and ultimately get caught. And Corey and her sister Betsy are sent to Ravensbrück concentration camp themselves. They're at this camp. They're hurting. They're hungry. They're sick. They're dying. They're beaten. They're abused. Betsy didn't make it. She died in obedience to doing what Christ called her to do, and that is to love him and love other people above herself. Corey made it through, and afterwards uh, she wrote a book and she, she proclaimed Jesus. 
And one time she was proclaiming Jesus in, in front of this church, right? And after the service, this guy comes up to her and immediately she recognized him. He was one of the worst tormentors at the camp. He was one of the prison guards. He had killed, beaten, raped, and abused. Is that this man's hand, you could say that his, her own sister had died, basically. The man walks up to her and he said, how can Jesus forgive me? You don't realize what I've done. I've done too much wrong. And you want to talk about complete obedience. This woman that has this hatred and this anger because of what have happened to her and all of her friends and all the people that died at the hands of men like this. She is obedient and not mentioned in his sin, but mentioned in his savior. And she said, Jesus does forgive you. And I do too. That's obedience. That's where we need to be. That's strong. That strong. Completely obedient in spite of suffering. I challenge you, be obedient without complaint through suffering and with holiness. Last point of the day. 10 through 12. This is awesome. Jesus was victorious because he conquered sin and death. Let's read. That it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He was put him to grief. We already read this. When his soul makes an offering for sin. Get this. Here's the beautiful part. We talked about the tough part. Sin had to be paid for, right? Here's beauty. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. This is Isaiah's way of saying he'll be put to death, but death cannot contain him. He will be risen. He will be exalted. He will have life. And better than that, he will take his offspring with him. Who are his offspring? Remember from first, from John 1, we are his offspring. It's a beautiful statement. It fires me up. Jesus not only died for me, but he rose again so that I could have eternal life, so that you can have eternal life, so that you can experience peace right now. Why was Jesus victorious? Because he conquered death, something that no other could do. As we read further, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall, shall he see and be satisfied by his knowledge, shall the righteous one. Let's stop there a second. I could be up here preaching about Mike Smith, or I could be preaching about Buddha, or I could be preaching about anybody and everybody and say, man, he saved you. Why? Because he died. Woo! Everybody's died. We can just pick anybody then, can't we? Jesus is different because he is righteous. He is different because he's perfect. He is different because he's the only one that lived absolutely without sin. Righteous just means he is right. He is right with God. And then here's the beauty of it. You guys are sitting in here and some of you are saved and you don't even realize this yourself. When he died for you, your sins were not only forgiven, but get this. He said, I'm making you right. 
When the God of heaven and earth, the creator of all things, looks upon you, he'll say, he's right. He's right with me. He's coming in. And it was because of Jesus and his shed blood. Why Jesus? Why him to do this work? Because he is the only one that's righteous. And because he has made us righteous through himself and through his blood on the cross. He makes many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, get this, here's the victory. I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. We were looking for that Savior that's riding triumphantly. We got him. Only it doesn't happen in the beginning. He's triumphant at the end, babies. He is moving forward. He is going upward, and he is taking the army with him. And the army is us. Here's the beauty of it. The way we look at things, it's great military men and great leaders are those that have conquered nations. And how did they conquer them? Through the blood of their army. Not our savior, not our king, not our majestic leader. He conquered death through his own blood. How strong is that? If that don't get you fired up, nothing should. What a beautiful, magnificent, loving, incredible Savior we have in Jesus Christ. So I want to ask you this. So Jesus is victorious. Are you ready to choose victory? Are you ready to choose peace? Are you planning on staying in rejection? Are you, are you planning on living your own way? There's only two choices. 2001 was a tough year for a lot of people. It was a tough year for my wife and I. June of 2001, my wife's birthday and our anniversary, and I wanted to do something really special for her. Some of you will be like, well, that ain't so special when you see it. But <clears throat> I wanted to paint my wife a painting. Now, that sounds really beautiful and all, except for the fact that I'd never painted a thing in my life. <laughs> Not only had I never painted a thing in my life, I'd never taken one single art class in my life. So I don't know where I got the idea, but I thought it was a good one. <laughs> so I... I sit in front of this blank canvas and I'm like, what on earth am I going to paint? It hits me. I need to paint what's most beautiful to me. I need to paint what makes me a great husband to her. And that's Jesus. And what he's done for me. So we can never forget in our household who Jesus is. So put painting up here. Don't laugh, please. This is my first painting. It means a world to me. I was on my face before the Lord, getting ready to preach this message. And I'm like, God, how do I explain it? And he's like, you painted it. Show him. So I'm going to show you what Jesus has done through me, for me, through this painting. I can show you. On the left side, you'll see it's very dark. And that's where I was for 27 years, and it's where a lot of you are right now. 
It's in rejection and rebellion of our Lord and Savior. It's a place where you think you've got it all made. It's a place where you're sinning and you're loving it. And you're publicly professing your sin. You're at the water cooler saying what you did last night and you're proud of it. But yet there's a deep peace place inside of you that's dying because of it. And it sickens you because of it. That's where I was. Direct rebellion, sin. It was a dark place. And let me tell you something. At first, it seems like it might be a great place where it leads to his death, which is exactly where I was at. On the other side, so we've got the rejection that we just preached on. On the other side, we've got the exaltation. We've got Jesus Christ in the red. You see the little things going up there. I'm not a good painter, but what I was trying to say is I exalt Jesus Christ. He has done everything for me and I will lift him up. And I want everybody to know what he's done for me. He's beautiful. He's incredible. Why is he incredible? Because of the center peace. Because of the victorious cross of Christ. Where he took everything and gave me life. You'll notice the little bag next to the cross. Sometimes when I would pray, and I still do at times, I'll think of my sin, and I'll think of where I've hurt people. And when I repent of it, I'll think, oh, I'll put it in that bag, and I'll ask God for forgiveness. And rather than continuing to carry that bag of guilt, which some of us so often continue to carry, even though he's freed us from it, I take that bag of guilt and shame and sin, and I lay it at the cross. I'm reminded that Jesus took that. Jesus took that. If you're in this room and you do not have peace in your life, if you're in this room and you're hurting, you're in pain, you're suffering, your marriage is ruined, your job is gone, whatever it is, take it to the cross of Jesus Christ. The giver of peace and comfort is ready to be there for you. It's not necessarily going to take away your bad situation. What it does is take that load off of your shoulders and puts it on Christ. And he's ready and desiring for you to give that burden up to him. If you're in this room and you're living in that dark side and you've even heard this message before, I'm going to challenge you right now. Let this be the day that you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. I love in John 11 when Jesus is talking about Lazarus and Lazarus and he's talking to his sister and he says, he goes, I'm the giver of life. He says, whoever believes in me, life. And then Jesus asks an incredible question. And he asks everybody in this room today. It's a very small little question, but powerful. Do you believe this? Do you believe it? The giver of life has given everything for you. Believe it. He changed my world. A month after we did this painting, we found out Jill had a horrible cancer. (laughs) Devastated us. We look at this painting, we just drop to our knees and say, Lord, Lord, you are our God. And we take comfort 
and refuge in you, our Savior, our King. I want to do something just a little bit different today. Usually when we sing at the end of a service, everybody stands up and sings. I'm going to ask all of you to stay seated during this first song. Listen up. Stay seated during this first song. And this is what I want you to do. I want you to examine your life. And if you're in this side right here of this painting, if you're in the middle of that darkness, and I've been in that pit before, and I know how bad it hurts, I'm telling you right now, I'm a living testimony that you do not have to stand there. Get out of the pit. Be exalted with the Savior that died for you. Reject all that's been said in that you're not good enough. You've done too much sin. You've hurt too many people. Forget about it. He took care of it all. Just receive it. Receive him today. During this song, there's no special prayer. I'm not going to have you stand. I'm not going to have you come to the front. When I accepted Jesus, it wasn't about anything I did other than my heart changing from solid stone to beautiful love and softened and ready to proclaim Jesus Christ. Just tell him that. God, I've been on that black side and I'm ready to exalt you as my Lord and Savior. That's what I want. Just tell him. And there's others in this room right now that they gave their life to Jesus Christ. And I know there's some people in this room right now that they're thinking, oh, that's great. Aaron gave a gospel message, but he's not talking to me. Then you haven't been listening. Are you exalting the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? Let me tell you something. If all of us in this room were obedient and repented of our sins, we could turn the world upside down for Jesus Christ. Are we proclaiming him as the Apostle Paul did and as a 16-year-old kid in my youth ministry? Are we being obedient to the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings? Not because he's got his thumb on us and he's trying to keep us from having fun, but because he's a loving father trying to protect us like I love my own children and trying to protect them from making stupid mistakes. Are we living obedience? Lastly, are you living with the peace that you have victory in Jesus Christ? Nothing worse than seeing a sour Christian. You're a victorious child of God. Be in your chairs. Stay in your chairs through this song. Repent. Give your life to him. Remember, if you do, Jesus says, confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord. Believe your heart that God raised him from the dead and you'll be saved. Let somebody know you've made a change today. We've got some packages out in the back. If you've, if you've given your life to Jesus, grab one of those packages. It gives you a little bit more information. More importantly, come talk to me or come talk to one of the pastors. For those of you who need to repent, just bow your heads in repentance and say, Jesus, I have not been exalting you. It's time for repentance right now. After the song... We'll do a second one. We'll raise up and we'll worship him together as what? As victors in Jesus Christ.